Hello Blazers, welcome to episode 51 of UAB Green and Told, original air date Monday, August 2nd, 2021. Through this podcast, we are able to share stories from members of the UAB community. Take a listen back to all of our episodes on Spotify and the Apple Podcast app. While there, leave a written review so we can reach more alumni. I'm Greg Berry, a UAB alum and assistant director in the Office of Alumni Affairs. On today's episode of UAB Green and Told, we welcome Chuck Stokes. For decades, Chuck has been a well-respected leader in healthcare administration. Over the course of his career, he has seen the healthcare industry transition, but as he'll share, it's not C-level executives like him who need to be heard the most. The best solutions that we have for really thorny healthcare problems today are going to come from the frontline people that actually do the work. While Chuck graduated from UAB nearly four decades ago, he'll explain why he's felt compelled to remain close to the institution. The personal experience, I think, is the personal experience of the relationship between the faculty and the students. And actually, that still remains today. And just where's the healthcare industry going? As Chuck will tell us, the future is already here. It just keeps changing all the time. The world of genomics is changing along with artificial intelligence at an alarming rate. Artificial intelligence and machine learning is doubling its capacity every 18 months. Every 18 months. Yazoo City is the gateway to the Mississippi Delta. When you come down the Broadway Hill on the south edge of town, Mississippi becomes flat for hundreds of miles. That's where Chuck Stokes grew up. Ultimately, he'd become one of the most respected administrators in healthcare leadership, but Stokes' career trajectory changed with a last-minute decision in college. I was at Mississippi State, and I was thinking of, you know, finishing in a double major of engineering psychology. And, um, and so I made a career change, really, at my senior year in, in college, and I went back to Yazoo City and talked to my primary care physician. And he was a general practitioner. He, he actually delivered me as a baby. And he said, well, why don't you come during the summer? He said, why don't you come and work at the hospital in the summer as an orderly? And you can come into surgery with me and I'll show you. You can watch uh, this lady named Geneva Pearson was a CRNA in Yazoo City. Uh, Dr. Moorhead was, was the general practitioner. He taught me how to scrub and pass instruments. And he said, now, when you get to nursing school, he said, if you want to go to nursing school at University of Mississippi, he said, you can work in surgery there as a scrub tech and you can watch what CRNAs and anesthesiologists do. He said that that way you can pick up more knowledge about the career and uh, before you get out of nursing school. And that's what I did. I went to nursing school and got applied for University of Mississippi. I got accepted. And I worked my way through nursing school as a scrub tech in the OR uh, at University of Mississippi. And then in 1977, when I graduated, you had to spend three years as an ICU nurse before they would let you apply for CRNA school to become a certified registered nurse anesthetist. And you had to work three years uh, as an ICU nurse. Between working in the OR as a scrub tech while I was in school, and then three years as an ICU nurse, I kind of decided that uh, I had an opportunity to become a, they asked me if I wanted to take an administrative position in uh, as a nurse executive, uh, as an assistant director of nurses for the critical care units at University Medical Center. 
And I told them that I would, I'd like to try that for a year just to make sure that I wanted to become a, you know, I wanted to make sure I wasn't excluding a possibility of something that might've been more interesting. And so I ended up doing the year and uh, had to tell the chairman of anesthesiology that I was going to wait a year to go to CRNA school. He wasn't very excited about that. He said, have you lost your mind? He said, you're going to hate management. You're going to hate leadership. Um, he said, you're a clinician. You need to stay in the clinical role. This was something different every day. Management and leadership was not like sitting on a stool 10, 8, 10, 12 hours a day uh, administering anesthesia that it was something that was changing every day and there was no, it wasn't boring, that's for sure. But I quickly realized after I, about a year in that role that I knew a lot about clinical practice, but I knew nothing about managing. Let's talk a little bit about the leadership at the time in healthcare. When you first got into it, how, what would you describe that atmosphere, that environment like? Well, in the 70s, the leadership style, I should say then, was was certainly more autocratic. I mean, hospital executives told other people what to do. I mean, it was not like leadership today where you have to respect uh, the diversity and uh, inclusion of thought leaders across the enterprise. Back then, it was autocratic. You know, I'm the boss. You do what I tell you to do. I guess the style of leadership that I adopted over time was more of a servant leader because I think in order to lead people, you have to first show them that you're willing to serve and that you're willing to understand where they are and how they, how they come into their roles and what they can have, what they can contribute. That became very important to me because what I realized the best solutions that we have for really thorny healthcare problems today are going to come from the frontline people that actually do the work every day. Those solutions are not going to come from the C-suite. The C-suite executives are not the ones that are out there doing the work every day. And what really physicians, especially physicians and other uh, allied health professionals, what they really don't like is for somebody to hand them a solution to a problem that they had no input into. I would say that the difference in the leadership chain, uh, leadership styles, you've seen that evolve over the last many decades from the autocratic leader to one of more team oriented. And then now, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion is a really impart, important part of leadership because it is one showing deference to expertise within the organization. And certainly COVID has, uh, the pandemic has shown us it's a team sport. And there, you know, even though we might have been educated that we all are independent and autonomous, we've learned over the years, if you're going to have a safe environment and you're going to have a harm-free environment, you have to do that from a team perspective. Going off that a little bit, as a young administrator, when you were first beginning, what were the biggest challenges that you were facing? The biggest challenge personally in the late 70s was a, was a national nursing crisis. It was a shortage of nurses. And here we are today still facing a nursing crisis. But that was the biggest crisis that we had because in 1979, 
we were recruiting nurses from Canada, England, and the Philippines at the University of Mississippi. You know, we were offering like leases on cars for three years if they would come and stay in the ICU for three years. We and we were the trauma center for the state for the state of Mississippi, and so surgery never stopped. And we just didn't have enough nurses to take care of people. And that was the biggest crisis uh, during my early, during my first job in leadership. What went into the thinking of, you know what, I, I think I need to go back to school. I think I need to go get a master's in um, healthcare leadership. And why UAB? I, I felt like I was an excellent clinician because back then, Doctors and other nurses took a lot of time and attention in training nurses to be superb clinicians back in that period of time. When you move from that bedside nurse to a leader, then you have to deal with all the problems that people come to work with. They come to work with personal problems. They come to work with financial problems. They have all these personal issues that show up in the workplace and you as a leader whether you want to or not, you have to deal with those. Well, at like 24 years old, I'd never dealt with those kind of problems before. Uh, some of them were brand new problems I've never even been introduced to. That made me realize that I had to go back to school to learn to become a leader. You give me a clinical problem, I could solve that. There's blindfolded, I was, I was fine with that. And then about getting people to work together and then how you develop your leaders, because it's up to you as a leader to develop other leaders within the organization. You have to show them how to do that. We had a residency fellowship with, um, it was a residency program with UAB for UAB residents at University of Mississippi. And our CEO at the time, uh, Bill Newell was, was very uh, high on our program and. UAB's program was in the top five programs in the country at the time. And so I said, hey, here, I don't have to travel far from home. And this was, um, uh, this was, you know, Alabama was familiar territory. I was born and raised in the South. And so he ended up uh, introducing me to Dr. Dick Thompson, who was the chair of the program at the time. I went, came over for an interview and interviewed and got accepted into the program. And so never looked back. What was the program like? Because this was in the early 80s. Obviously, campus was drastically different, but I imagine the School of Health Professions was different as well. It was. I mean, we were located on Fifth Avenue downtown in a two-story building and not very nondescript building. Very different kind of learning experience than college because, you know, in college, you had big classrooms and you had a lot of people. Well, there was only like 32 people in our class. The difference was that the faculty at UAB at the time, Dick Thompson, Howard Hauser, Bob Hernandez, T. Hyatt, these are people that are still around. And, you know, these are people, uh, Dan Hill, these, they became kind of like your second family because they were so intimately involved in you learning. It was kind of inside and out, out, outside the uh, classroom. They prepared you about how to act in the real world. Now, a lot of us that had been, there were over half our class had never you know, been in a hospital, worked in a hospital. I was fortunate that I'd had that experience. And so I knew 
a little bit about probably more about that than some of my classmates but you know they they were the instructors and so they were the professors who they started from ground zero with everybody what do you think the biggest takeaway now reflecting on all of those years ago that you took away from uab probably the the personal experience i think is the personal experience of the re, uh, of the relationship between the faculty and the students and actually that still remains today. That is one of the major strengths of our program that differentiates UAB from any other program in the country. And I think that that is key for us maintaining our status as a number one program. It's that constant interaction and the collegiality between faculty members that work together. They have a professional and a personal commitment to uh, education and to seeing that the students are prepared to take that next step out into the real world. They don't want to send them out there ill-prepared and then get feedback from uh, somebody like me in the field saying, who are you sending us today? I mean, these people, they don't have skills, they don't have this. I've been taking UAB residents for, gee, at least 20 years. I mean, a long time. Everybody is a little rough around the edges, but I'm talking about people that are just totally ill-prepared and UAB, the faculty, just, uh, they pride themselves on that. You mentioned that the program was in the top five in the nation when you were part of it back in 1983. How do you think the university and the program has sustained that through the decades? Yeah, that's a good question. I think a lot of it has been sustained by alumni who are committed to the program. When we, when we in the field as CEOs and COOs in the field see the quality and the caliber of the students that are coming out of the program and we get to watch them develop over time, we then can say, okay, they are doing things right in the school, in the program. And we, we get together, you know, at multi, I mean, the, the UAB has always had our Sandestin Symposium. We've had that for many, many years. And we get together with the faculty member at preceptor conferences and stuff like that. And we give the faculty input into what constitutes a really well-prepared student coming into their residency or their fellowship. And the thing is, the faculty, our faculty listens. They, they take that feedback seriously. They don't blow it off. And, and that's something in some academic programs that people, they again, the deference to the expertise. It's the same thing as the CEO listening to the doctor or the nurse. It's the instructor and it's the professor that's listening to the CEO saying, let me tell you what I'm seeing in, in your students. And either taking that to heart and saying that we're giving you feedback because we care about our program and we care about the students and we only give you know feedback as a gift and you give only give gifts to people that you care about i don't want to say that your career bounced around but you went from different spots here and there huntsville texas you grew up in mississippi but yet you remain close to UAB and you're still a part of the program all of these years later. Why has that been so important? 
That's an interesting question. One, I like teaching. I mean, that's I've been teaching for ACHE uh, since I started uh, and actually started with the American College of Healthcare Executives as a student affiliate back in 1981 when I started because the professors, all of our professors said, you got to get in to your professional association. But through ACHE, uh, somehow or another, I got into the teaching track with them and I taught COO boot camp. I taught many other programs for them for many, many years. And I always enjoyed the teaching aspect, but I think it's, it's probably more about also giving back to the program. It's probably deeper than that, but it's, it's giving back to the program that helped make you successful. And so I think that it's, it's an obligation and, in some ways, because some people go through their, you know, academic programs and they're very successful and it's like the program never existed. They don't have anything else to do with their program, but that separates. That's one of the things that separates UAB alumni from other alumni is you have people that are committed to say, how can I help? I can help if I can teach, if I can mentor, if I can, uh, if I can financially support a scholarship programs, if I can give you something back that you helped me create, uh, that you, you know, set me on the course or the path to create. Each time when you move to a new hospital, to a new system, were the goals kind of the same or did they differ every time because they were just totally different positions? Healthcare is local. And so healthcare in Birmingham and healthcare in Huntsville, Alabama, and healthcare in Houston, Texas, or Little Rock, Arkansas, they were all different. They had different issues with healthcare in their communities. And so what you have to learn to do as an executive is you learn to be flexible and adaptable. If you're going to be an effective leader, you can't uh, uh, approach it from a cookie cutter standpoint and say, well, the same issues are applicable in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, as they are in Houston, Texas. That is not true. And it's not true anywhere really in the country. And every community has its own issues. And so today, you know, when we look at healthcare today, there's some overarching issues that we have about healthcare disparities. And we're going to have, I mean, that's something our country is coming to grips with now about how do we deal with healthcare disparities? If we want to improve the health status of our country and stop having us spend twice as much on healthcare in the United States as any other country in the world, 18% of our GDP going to healthcare, but yet we don't have better outcomes than 35 or 36 other countries. How is that? How are we going to come to grips with that? You know, you're talking about a four plus trillion dollar business and we have to change and we know we have to change. There's never been transformational change in healthcare. It's always been kind of the incremental tinkering. We, we change a little at a time because we're scientific. Most of us are scientists by nature, right? So if you're a doctor or a nurse, you got to make sure something is proven that there's a clinical trial that it works and it's, uh, you know, the data is good and the data shows that this is the best way to do something. And so in healthcare, what we are screaming for today as a country 
is for equity and to try to improve the health status. But we need transformational change and not incremental tinkering. It's very hard to find courageous leaders at a national, state, and local level that are saying, here's what we need to do with our healthcare resources to deal with food deserts, homelessness, inequities in terms of people's access to healthcare. And I'm, I'm, I'm really not sure where we're going with that yet. At what point in your career do you feel you became a courageous leader? I really don't know how to answer that. because, And actually, uh, Dr. Lamack and several other executives, we just did a webinar on courageous leadership. The thing to me is, it's hard for me to, to differ, differentiate between what's courageous leadership versus a hard decision. Making a hard decision is like two organizations deciding that they're going to merge. And that to me, that's a hard decision. But to somebody else, that could have been a courageous decision because of the implications for a merger. An example of a courageous decision for me would be a CEO that would go into their board and say, we need to take half of our operating margin and spend it on healthcare disparities in our community. And this is what I'm telling you as a leader, I'm willing to support as a leader. And that's the only thing I'm gonna do. And I, because I think that's the right thing to do. And if you as a governance can't support that, I'm probably not the right person for this role. That would be an example of a courageous leader that would put their position on the line to say, I feel so strongly about this. And I want you as an organization to know, I truly believe this is our role in this community is to get rid of homelessness, get rid of food deserts. How do we you know, make healthcare accessible to people, et cetera. I think having to make decisions, which I made throughout my 40 years of downsizing, right-sizing organizations, making tough leadership changes, taking organizations on different trajectories. Those are just hard decisions. I don't know that those are really courageous. Courageous decisions are another rung above those. And that's, that's where I think we are in healthcare today. I mean, you've got people in Washington that cannot agree, that run our country, that cannot agree that healthcare is a right. Okay, there is a disagreement about that. It's going to take courageous leadership for people to come and say, healthcare is a right or no, it's a privilege. One or the two, but either one of those is going to take courageous leadership. Because it's putting yourself out there Courageous leadership can be adapted into other avenues as well. It's not just healthcare; it goes right. all yes. over business. That's true. Absolutely. I mean, you uh, any business that is taking a different trajectory than its like core mission. If you go back most if, to any healthcare organization, I mean, there's always something in there about improving the health status of the community, about taking care of the poor and underserved etc. I mean, that is just kind of like standard 
stuff in mission, vision, and values. But really, when you get down to analyzing what does your mission, vision, and value statement say, and is there a line of sight between what I am telling our governance they should be doing as a board and the mission, vision, and value, is there a clear line of sight? Those things get fuzzy from time to time. And because you might have board members that say, well, you know, it's not up to our organization to make the community well. We can only do so much and we feel like we do our fair share. Well, what is your fair share? I mean, that is a very difficult and very ambiguous kind of um, number out there. The courageous leaders are the ones that say, we have to take a different trajectory of our hospital. What you're going to see in a post-COVID world is I think you're going to see the acceleration of mergers and acquisitions. I think you might see organizations step up again and say, from a scope and scale standpoint, we have to have the scope and scale so that when the next pandemic comes, we're going to be financially ready for it. We're going to be, from an infrastructure standpoint, we're going to be ready for it, et cetera. And a merger is the best way for us to go. And I'm not minimizing that. That could be a courageous decision by two organizations that have been like-minded organizations coming together for the benefit of a community. That is a courageous decision. We're going to, we're, I think we're going to see more of that after, after the pandemic. Having spent 40 years in healthcare as administrator, where do you see the industry going in the next 10, 15, 20 years? Well, I think that there's a lot of things that are going to change the industry that we have to pay attention to right now. And so one we, we dealt with earlier was workforce shortages. Prior to the pandemic, we had a shortage of nurses, pharmacists, allied health, other allied health professionals, and we had a shortage of physicians. And the issue is that with all of us baby boomers turning at 65 at 10,000 a day, we're getting ready to consume more healthcare resources than we've ever consumed in the history of our country. There's nothing that interrupts the trajectory of that course, except we're actually baby boomers are living longer now because of technology. And so if you know that, and there was a shortage before, how are we going to deal with workforce shortages going forward? And that means we're going to have to train people not at the top of their, to practice at the top of their license, their license are going to have to be redefined. And it's like the nurse, advanced nurse practitioner doing 70% of what a doctor does and the doctor actually elevating, you know, maybe a primary care physician starting to do more procedural type things that a specialist used to do because technique and technology has made it safe. And they've shown that they can demonstrate that they can improve health status, less costs, more efficient if they can do those procedures. And the same for the nurse at the bedside, you're going to have to take the RN at the bedside and you're going to have to elevate their skills. But then you're going to have to take some technical level person that can do 75% of what the nurse at the bedside is doing. I mean, these are the things that we have to start thinking about. So education is one of them. The second thing that we have to anticipate is what is going to happen in the world of genomics, because the world of genomics is changing along with artificial intelligence at an alarming rate. Artificial intelligence 
and machine learning is doubling its capacity every 18 months. Every 18 months, we're going to be able to precisely say, you have this, and this is the correct treatment of choice and the course of action. And that could be prescribed by a nurse practitioner. It could be prescribed. It's just the automatic thing to do. And that is going to change how medicine is practiced going forward machine learning and artificial intelligence and genomics. But it's not that they're coming, it's they're already here. These topics and issues have to be dealt with today. The other thing in healthcare that we have to do is we have to figure out how we're going to approach the management of chronic disease patients. How do we manage those people in the home environment through technology instead of in the most expensive place in the acute care setting and the uh, uh, skilled nursing facilities, et cetera? How do we handle them through uh, changes in technology? And again, that's one of those things. It's here today. We're already doing it. We have to accelerate it. And I would say the final thing in healthcare is how do we deal with end of life issues? Because as a country, we do an abysmal job of taking care of people at the end of life. And actually, I think sometimes what we do is we actually harm people. We cause harm to people at the end of life because we have technology to keep people alive for a long time. We can put them on machines. We can give them medications. We have all kinds of treatment things but that is not synonymous with the quality of life. The goal is not to keep the person alive as long as they can. The, the goal should be mutually set between the patient, their family members, and the physician to say, what do you want? What do you want at the end of life? We have to come to, to grips with that in a meaningful way. There's no, no easy answers for that. That's Chuck Stokes. Chuck graduated from the UAB School of Health Professions in 1983 with a Master of Science in Hospital and Health Administration. After a lengthy career as an administrator, Chuck recently retired. A big supporter of UAB, Chuck truly understands what it means to be a blazer. Being a blazer means if UAB has made you successful, put you on the road to success, you need to be supportive of your alumni and your, uh, your school. And that's really uh, what it means to me is I wanna show that I can give back financially through my time, resources, and exposing other, you know, bringing other resources to the table that I can bring to the table to keep us, uh, our status. We have a fabulous status uh, at UAB and UAB is well recognized, not only across the country, but across the world. And that's really what uh, being a blazer means to me is protecting that status uh, across uh, internationally and nationally. You can hear more about the courageous leadership Chuck spoke about as part of a webinar done by the UAB Department of Health Services Administration. We'll have that link in our show notes. Be sure to listen to previous episodes of UAB Green and Told. You can find all of them at alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold. Have a story to share? Email me at greenandtold at uab.edu. Finally, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search UAB Alumni. Thanks for listening, and until next time, go Blazers!